in some of those songs. All right, let's take our Bibles now, if you would, and open them to 1 John chapter 5. And this evening, we are in the final part of John's teachings on the doctrine of Christ. And so we are headed for the conclusion of this letter and the doctrinal and practical applications that John sought to prove in this epistle have now come to the end. And so when we finish these verses, we're into the, we'll make some final comments about them. And then the rest of the chapter are some things that John states to close out with. But I'd like to uh, read these final verses or these verses in the chapter, not the final verses of the chapter. As I said, they end our uh, doctrinal part of the, of the scripture here in 1 John 5. But if you'll notice verse number 9, John says, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Now, as John refutes the heresies of the Gnostics and their belief that Jesus is not the God-man, that he is not God incarnate, the concluding testimony that John gives here of the truth is that which is given by God himself. The final authority on the deity of Christ is not the testimony that's given by the apostles, as good as that is and as Uh, convincing as it is. The apostles are not the final authority on Christ. The final authority on Jesus is not the testimony that you or I give. Uh, Each of us can certainly witness to what God has done with us, the how our belief in Christ has changed us and that we are different people. Something happened to us since we have believed, but our experience is not the final authority. Now, John has given us here a measure of apostolic proof. He's touched on the experiential side of salvation, which is the subjective experience of believing. And those certainly do need to be considered. But what John reserves for the last and his best argument is the testimony that's given by God. Now, verses number 6 through 8 give us that testimony concerning Christ. Uh, John says that the Holy Spirit bears witness of him, and the Spirit is God. He says God the Father has borne witness to him, and he's done that in two ways. He did it at the baptism of Jesus and at his death. And so we find there in verses 6 through 8, when John mentions the blood, the water, and the blood, that that is the testimony of God that he gave when Jesus was baptized and then when he was crucified on the cross. So we're talking here, and this will be first on your listening sheet tonight, just a little bit of review here, the reception of valid testimony. As we finish verses 9 and 12, 9 through 12, there's another avenue of argument that's introduced in which the character of the one who witnesses about Christ is introduced. Now, one basis for accepting testimony has already been established, and that is the requirement that there must be multiple witnesses. God's word says that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word is established. And so John has given us three witnesses that bear testimony to Christ. And then in this section, verses 9 through 12, John meets another requirement for valid testimony, and that's the character of the one that witnesses. 
Now, if the testimony of fallible men can be used if it meets certain requirements, then why would anyone ever disbelieve the witness of God? When God's character is infallible, when he is absolute truth, who would not believe the testimony that God has given of his son? Now, verse number 9 is given to us to show logical, a logical, irrefutable argument that if you can't believe the one great witness, the one who is impeccable in character, if you can't believe him, then there is no basis to believe testimony of anyone. So the undeniable testimony of God is called upon, and John says God has testified of his son. Now, next we discussed the the results of valid testimony. And we didn't really get a chance to finish this last week, which I will do tonight. But this concerns the benefits of receiving valid testimony and the consequences of not believing that testimony. Letter A on your listening sheet is what we dealt with last week, and that is confidence in God. If you believe the testimony that God gave of his son, then you receive the benefit of the assurance of your salvation. Now, believing the testimony of God and believing on the son of God are one and the same. And so if you believe the record that God has given of his son, then that faith that you have in Christ secures confidence that you have eternal life. Now, the great passage that we have in Hebrews chapter 11 bears that out. In Hebrews 11 verse 1, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And the type of faith that that writer is talking about is the reality of Christian hope. It brings the future promises of God down into the present so that we receive those as if we're already in possession of them. And this is why that Abraham followed God when he, and went to places that he didn't know anything about because he had that promise in front of him and believing in that promise, he believed it as if he was already in possession of it And therefore, he looked for that heavenly country. He believed that it belonged to him. So when you have confidence in God's testimony, that's when God opens up the door to further illumination. And he has a method of doing that, which is described in verse number 10. John says, He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. And the witness he's speaking of is the Holy Spirit that comes to indwell the believer. The only avenue of greater illumination is to have the Holy Spirit working in us. Now, if you turn for just a moment to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we can see here a great passage on spiritual illumination. And this is one of those passages that I come back to often because it's very helpful in just so many ways to help us uh, or to aid us in our understanding of how the Holy Spirit works. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse number 9, But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of men the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man, but the Spirit of God." Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. 
Now, I want you to notice something there about verse number 9, where he says, Paul says, But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. That's a verse that's most often used to say that Paul is talking about heaven that we don't know what God has prepared for us. We can't understand about heaven. We just don't, can't get it into our minds, all the things that God has prepared for us there. But that's really not what Paul is talking about in that verse. Now, although it is true that we don't understand everything about heaven and we're going to be amazed when we get there, what Paul is actually talking about is the revelation of truth that's given by the Holy Spirit, the truths that are found in the Word of God that can come to us the realization of those truths that can come to us only by the Holy Spirit living within us. Those things are not discernible by human understanding. And so in order for us to receive this confidence, uh, the confidence that what God says is true, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell the Christian to open up his eyes of spiritual understanding so that he can receive all of these truths. And that's what makes the difference between you and other people that have no clue and have no interest in spiritual matters. You know, you would think that eternity would be a pressing issue on people's minds. I mean, especially when there is such uncertainty about this temporal life. I mean, if you pick up your newspaper, the newspapers are, are filled every day. There's a whole section of obituaries. And if if you don't find death in the newspaper there in the obituaries where people have lived out maybe some of them long lives and then have died of natural causes, you find it on the front page, you find murders and you find automobile accidents, you find accidental drownings, all different kinds of premature causes of death. And those things, I mean, just looking at those in your newspaper every single day ought to wake people up to wonder what will eternity be like for them. But most people show no interest in that because somehow they believe that they're going to cheat death or that death is just too far away to be concerned about. There's no reason to think about it now. And so what is beyond this life is really of not much interest to them. But that's not the way that it is with a Christian. A Christian is concerned about this because he knows and believes that he's going to stand before the judgment of God. And he knows that either he will have his sins judged in Christ at the cross or he'll stand before God without any protection at all from God's wrath. And so it's the Holy Spirit that gives us the confidence that we will meet God in judgment being justified from our sins, no longer guilty of condemnation of sin, and then we will enter the paradise of God where we'll see God and live with him forever. That's the witness that we have. It's given here in verse 10. The witness that is inside of us is what gives us the assurance of our faith. Now, just to summarize that point up and to wrap it up, uh, there are two ways that the Spirit works with the Christian, and these are two two points that we discussed in the end of the message last week, and that is the Holy Spirit works in an objective way and also in a subjective way. And in order for these two types of, of work to be done in the right manner or to be understood in the right manner, you have to take them in the right order. Now, the first way that the Spirit works with us is an objective way which is external to us, and that's the witness that God has given in his word. 
It's the written record that plainly states the facts about Jesus Christ. It's God's written testimony of who Jesus is and what he's done. So that first objective way, that's external. And there's, in the Bible, is where we find the information about the plan of God from eternity past. We find the providence of God in the present and also the promises of God that are coming in the future. So that's the written testimony that reveals the facts, it interprets the facts, and it tells us the relationship of the work of God in revealing himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the external objective word. So you have to have the facts first. I mean, you have to have something to believe in. So there is this objective standard that God has given. So that has to be first. And if we don't have that, then our faith is built on shifting sands. Confidence begins with belief of the facts of Christ. And we have no way of knowing those unless God has given us a written testimony. So the external witness comes first. And the Bible says we're born again by the word of truth. But the facts alone are not enough. We're not saved by a head knowledge of facts. Now, some people have said that the word of God, the knowledge of facts, has a little bit further to travel before it really comes home to you. You see, these things have come down to us through 1,500 years of the biblical record. We've had the completed word of God for 2,000 years, but those facts have to travel a little bit further than that. As some have said, they still have about 18 inches to go, and that's the difference between the head knowledge and what you know down in your heart. And so that's where the other part of the witness comes in. That's where it's needed. We have the external witness of the word, and then we need the internal witness. We get the word first, and then we get the internal witness of the Spirit second. And the Spirit, of course, is the Holy Spirit. He's the one who helps us to understand the Bible, helps us to believe the promises and to believe the doctrines that are in God's word. Now, for an unsaved person, he picks up the Bible, And not having the Holy Spirit in him, the Bible doesn't really mean very much to him. Now, as you know, there are colleges and universities that offer courses in the Bible as literature. And so they take the Bible and they dissect the literary method that's used and they bring it down or compare it to works like Shakespeare or some other author. And uh, when they're through with that, when they get done with the course, they lay the Bible aside and it doesn't mean anything to them. But again, that's not the way that it is with a Christian. A Christian looks at the Word of God and he reads it, and having the Holy Spirit within him, he realizes that there is power in the words of Scripture. There's thought-provoking things there. There are convicting words. These are words that are able to revolutionize a person's life and to completely reorient his thinking. The Word tells us that it's strong enough to divide, it's powerful enough to divide the joints from the marrow, which are able to reveal the true intents and thoughts of the heart. So the Bible speaks to us. And it speaks to us as much as if God was standing right here in front of us, talking to us audibly. And how does that happen? It happens because of the Holy Spirit that lives in us. He permeates the mind with the words of Scripture. So that's the internal witness. So that's the subjective side. But again, this objective has to come, the objective side has to come first because there is something that has to be believed. And if you don't know the objective, then what is it the subjective would ever do for you? The Spirit never works in anyone without the objective word. And that's why we teach 
and preach the Bible. So the result then of the Holy Spirit working in an objective and a subjective manner is confidence in the promises of God that we are saved. When he says, if you believe this, you will be saved, you'll have eternal life, we believe it. And because we believe it, we know without doubt that we do have eternal life. Now, the second part of those results is not towards the believer, but it deals with the unbeliever. The believer has confidence in God, but the unbeliever has condemnation from God. Now, what is that condemnation? Verse 12 explains, He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. So the condemnation from God is that the unbeliever does not have life. And I know it's hard to convince a living, breathing person that they don't have life. But that's what God's Word says about them. The person without Christ is the walking dead. Now, I think there was a movie that was, it came out a few years ago called Dead Man Walking. And it was about this fellow that was on death row and he was waiting for his execution. And the term for that person, person in, the, in the prison vernacular is that he is a dead man walking. That is, he's destined to go to the electric chair, the gas chamber, whatever, but he's as good as dead. And that's what the Bible teaches about a person who doesn't know Christ. He is as good as dead. He is dead, first of all, but he's, his, his fate is certain if he doesn't change and become a believer in Jesus Christ. He's as good as dead. Now, you see the opposite of that in Hebrews chapter 11, where it talks about Abraham again. Abraham walked by faith as if he was alive. He sojourned on this earth. He said he's a stranger and a pilgrim. He's looking for that heavenly country, and he walks as one who is alive. Not a dead man walking, but walks as one who is alive because he has this living, sure hope in God. But that's not the way it is with an unbeliever. God says he does not have life. He's a dead man walking. And as sure as heaven is for a a was the destination of Abraham, so the destination of a person without Christ is sure. He's born dead in trespasses and sin. He's born condemned to physical death and then to the second death. He's a lawbreaker. And he incurs the penalty of God's eternal condemnation. So that's what the scripture means when it says, He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. John also said this in the gospel account in John 3.36, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. And that's a huge difference, isn't it? Believing the record that God gave of his son has mighty significant consequences. On one hand, you have eternity in heaven, which is life. And on the other, you have eternity in hell, which is no life. Or, as the Bible terms it, the second death or eternal death. Now, as I I said earlier, there are some people that think they'll cheat death or at least they live as if they will. And mostly what they're thinking about is the last breath that they'll take and the funeral service that will be held for them. And they do everything that they can to avoid that last scenario that's going to happen to them. And they could only wish that that's all there was to it, that that's all there is to death is just the casket and the funeral service, and then that's the end in a cemetery. But that's not the end that, that In fact, death is just a final, well, I should say a fatal, not a final, but a fatal brief 
moment. Just very, very brief. In fact, I believe that death for an unbeliever is as fast as the translation of a living saint into the presence of God. Now, the Bible teaches that when we are transformed, when we die, our bodies are transformed. It says when Jesus comes back, we'll be translated in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. That's a nanosecond. We're into the presence of God. And I think that's the way it is for an unbeliever too. And without even the time to even blink the eye, and again, in just a nanosecond, the unbeliever is translated into the death of the fires of hell. So they could only wish that death was a casket and flowers and barrel in the earth. But it's more than that. It's much more than that. Death for an unbeliever is eternity in the fires of hell out of the presence of the eternal God. And that's the destiny. The destiny is to be forgotten by God with no hope of ever getting out of hell. Now, that kind of puts a different perspective on this as we read John here. And we read just a few short words here that says, He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Do you see how critical that is? The rejection of God's testimony concerning Christ has excruciating, painful results. Now, some people might think when they hear a message like this or hear preachers talk like this, why are you being so dramatic about this? Why, why make such a big fuss out of this? What has a person done? What has he possibly done that could result? Why has his unbelief result in such a dire consequence? John answers that question in verse number 10. He says, He that believeth not God hath made him a liar. Now, I remember watching one of the presidential debates some time ago. I don't remember which one it was or who was talking, but there was one of the candidates that was asked a question, and he went on and on and on about the, the record of his opponent. And in the end, the moderator said, Are you calling him a liar? And this fellow backpedaled. Lying was too strong of a term for him, and so he said, No, he's being less than truthful. Well, you, you can try to soften this blow by saying that God is being less than truthful, but that's the same as calling him a liar. Is that significant? Is it significant to call God a liar? Well, it's significant enough that one lie brings God down. One lie destroys the attributes of God. And one lie from God in this area that we're talking about here concerning the record that he gave of his son, one lie there means that there is no salvation for mankind. One lie from God would mean the destruction of the universe. One lie removes his power to uphold all things. One lie pulls the earth out of orbit and spins it into a cold universe. One lie is the process of galaxies collapsing and suddenly flaming out. One lie from God is the immediate end of life. And so do you think for a moment that God is going to let that accusation stand? It impugns God's character. It intensifies God's wrath against the guilty sinner. So you don't want to be guilty of calling God a liar. And yet the Bible teaches that every person that hears the gospel of Christ and refuses to believe it has called God a liar. We talk about this record that God gave of his son. It means that every Jehovah's Witness and every Mormon and any others that distorts the record that God gave of his son, it's called God a liar. They have not believed the true record that God gives. 
So I would say that there are some very serious consequences that go along with verse number 12. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son hath not life. And so this is why we don't play around when it comes to this theme of the Bible. This is not an issue for us to touch lightly on, to skip over and think it has no consequences. And this is what many churches have done. They've removed the objective witness of the Word of God from their pulpits. Pastors are so interested in being crowd pleasers that they keep feeding the people all kinds of feel-good stories and little object lessons and dreams of becoming a better you and filling and uh, fulfilling or finding your best life now. And that's exactly right for those folks. They have found their best life now. Life for them is as good as it gets because when they end it here, Truly, I have not seen nor ear heard what God has prepared for them. So what the preacher wouldn't tell them, because he was so interested in this life now, is the very thing that condemns that person to hell. This is not something that we mess with. When Joel Osteen was asked, do you think that Mormons are Christians? He said, yes. They've not believed the record that God gave of his son, and yet Joel says, yes, they're Christians. What does that make Joel Osteen? Makes him a liar because he says you don't have to believe the record that God gave of his son. Let me tell you what the scripture says about a preacher who does that. James said, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. That means for a preacher to say things like that, his condemnation is greater than the average Joe that says, oh, I just don't believe the Bible. I just don't believe the record God gave of his son. His condemnation, a preacher's condemnation is greater because he's taught that man to say it. He's led, in Osteen's case, 40,000 people to come to the same conclusion, led them in the same path. So I think you get the picture here. There are two different results that come out of God's testimony. One is belief and more confidence in God, and the other is unbelief and sure condemnation from God. And that's the same spiritual dichotomy that's existed all the way back to the very beginning. All people are headed to one of two places, either eternal life in heaven or eternal destruction in hell. Now, we need to move on to look at this third point so we can finish up these verses. Thirdly is the record of valid testimony. Verse 11 says, And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Now, do you notice something very straightforward in that statement? John does not say here, God has offered you eternal life. He does not say God has promised you eternal life. He says God has given us eternal life. Now, we recognize from that statement, first of all, that eternal life is God's gift. Now, if God gives eternal life as a gift, then that means that we don't earn it. God's not busily keeping a record of of all the good things that you've done, and in the end, he says, you know, I can make a fair exchange for all this good stuff that you've done, and I will reward you and your good deeds with eternal life. And neither does God say, Well, you have to have more than what you have. You you need to have a mystical knowledge of me. There are secrets to eternal life that only a select few can find out. And you have to be in that number. There has to be a special knowledge in order for you to have eternal life. And that's the error of the Gnostics. They'd put eternal life up on the top shelf where people had to climb up to get it. 
But God says, no, 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 this is much simpler than that. I'll put this down on the bottom shelf, and not only will I do that, I will give it to you. I'll just give it to you. Now, what is the purpose of the record that God has given of his son? It's so that you'll know about this. You can't get this gift if you don't know it's available. And that's why God sends people with the gospel to preach to people, to tell them about this gift so God can give it to them. If they don't know about it, they don't receive it. So no one receives a gift that they don't know exists. So salvation comes by the preaching of God's word, folks. And that's why we'd better make sure that we always reserve a place here to preach God's word and why all of us need to be involved with giving it to others because that's the only way that anyone will ever learn about the gift that God has given. Now, secondly, God's gift is eternal life. Now, do you realize, and I hope you probably do, uh, you should notice this, that preaching is the constant plowing of previously plowed ground. I mean, you may have heard me say a dozen times this month, People without Christ are dead in trespasses and sin. They are spiritually dead without Christ. And I said that already once in this message. But I'd like you to turn to John chapter 11 for just a moment. And this is the chapter that tells the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And Jesus had a, had a discussion with Martha, Lazarus' sister. And she was very concerned that Jesus had not come immediately when he heard the news that Lazarus was sick, and because Jesus delayed his coming, Lazarus had died. Now, Jesus taught her something about the resurrection that would come at the last day, and in the course of that discussion, he told her something that was very important about eternal life. He taught her that eternal life is not something that happens way off in the future, not when the body is raised, but it comes at another time. Now, notice the conversation beginning in verse 21. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now there we see that Martha has the future resurrection in her mind. Now, notice how Jesus begins to teach her more in verse 25. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? So Jesus brought eternal life right into the present with that statement. If you believe, you have eternal life right now. And we know that he has to be speaking of spiritual life when he says that a person that lives in him and believes in him will never die. He can't be talking about physical death because they're right then having a conversation about a saint of God that was physically dead. Now notice then the affirmation of Martha's faith and what she believed in verse 27. She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. Now, wait a minute, that sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God. That seems very familiar to us. Why? Because this is what John said in 1 John. 1 John 5, verse 1, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Verse 5, Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. And so there she affirmed the very thing that John says, You must believe this in order to have eternal life. So 
So eternal life, Jesus teaches, is a present possession. You have life when you believe. When you believe, you're born of God. And that's the same as saying death has no victory, will have no victory over you. Now, thirdly, Jesus is eternal life. Life is Jesus. He that hath the Son hath life. Now, the whole of this epistle of 1 John boils down to this statement. We have all of this evidence that's given concerning Christ. We have the proof of Christianity that comes from the keeping of commandments. We have the test of love that John has talked about. There's the witness that was given by the apostles concerning Christ. But the real nitty-gritty of all of it is this statement, do you believe the record that God gave of his son? If you have the son, you have life. Believing God, believing in Jesus is the same thing. Jesus is eternal life. The most important question that the disciples ever answered is this one that was asked by Jesus. In Matthew sixteen fifteen, Jesus asked them, Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered that question. You know what his answer is? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And there you're right back to what John said is essential to have eternal life. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And what do those that are born of God have? They have eternal life. And that's because that's the only kind of life that God gives. If you're going to get life from God, it will be eternal life. And we could take off on that and we could make a whole other sermon here if I wanted to. And we could talk about the eternal security of the believer. God does not give half-life. He doesn't give temporary life. When he saves a person, he gives him only one kind of life, and that is eternal life. And so when you are born again, you are immediately translated into the kingdom of God. Now, your body hasn't yet been translated. That's going to come later. But your spirit has been translated into the kingdom of God. And this is why Abraham realized the promise and why he counted himself as a pilgrim and a stranger passing through this life because he had life in the Son of God. He was in present possession of the very thing that he was pursuing, eternal life and God. He had it. He had it as a present possession. Now, folks, when you look at these different scriptures, what we read about Martha, what we read about the apostles and what they believed and what John says here in 1 John 5, it's just amazing how God's word fits so perfectly together. And I hope that you see that. I hope you make the connections between all of this when, when God's word really starts to fit together like it needs to fit or like it should fit in our own minds. So it's, it's just plainly awesome to get that big picture. So John saved his best argument for last. Have you believed the record that God gave of his son? And that's the difference between having life and not having life. The difference between heaven and hell. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and what wonderful truths that we find here. And Lord, we just thank you that you've made it so clear that we just trust you And you will give us eternal life. Believe the record that you gave of his son. Believe what Jesus did in coming to this world to die for sin. Realize that we are sinners with no hope unless you should do something for us. And Lord, you have...
put it into our hearts, this truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to believe it with all of our heart, Lord. May we trust you for eternal life. Be with our people tonight, Lord. We thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.